Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Last year, a judge in Montgomery County ordered the Lower Marion School District to rescind a property tax increase, saying the district misled taxpayers when the district said it had a large budget deficit. In reality, Lower Marion had a budget surplus of 50 to $60 million. School districts throughout the state are carrying surpluses and justify it by saying the money is needed for emergencies or a rainy day. Critics complain that considering the number of school districts that are raising taxes, it's raining already. Joining us to talk about this issue today of surpluses that the school districts have in Pennsylvania, John Callahan is the Assistant Executive Director of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Mr. Callahan, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure. Always also joining us is James Paul, a Senior Policy Analyst with the right-leaning think tank, the Commonwealth Foundation. Mr. Paul, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, uh, I'm going to start with you, John Callahan. The recommendation from the Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators is for districts to maintain 5 to 12% of their total budgets in an unassigned savings account. But yet, according to Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene D. Pasquale, almost half of 747 school districts, charter schools, and career and technical schools had at least 20% socked away. Around 20 had over 50% in surpluses. Can that be justified? Well, let me kind of start off with a little bit of, of, of kind of the technicality of these things. Okay. And so... One of the things I like to, oh, uh, you know me, I always like to start off with how my family works, you know, and how, how I do budgeting with the family. And when I talk to my, my budget, you know, my advisor, uh, who I don't listen to much, but I should listen to, especially in this factor, they say, you know, you, you need to have two to three weeks of savings in order just in case you get fired or something happens unexpectedly, whether it's, you know, health care or, or something. Weeks whatever. or months? Weeks. Okay. Now, I, I thought I heard it was months. Sometimes they say months, but... You know, my financial advisor was okay. like, just have at least two weeks, okay. you know, because that'll get you by enough. You yeah. know, maybe you'll survive. But, yeah, I mean, there is the two to three months. I mean, if I'm really being, being like, you know, very conservative about it. So, you know, when we're looking at those numbers, you know, that's the same thing. You know, I'm protecting my family. So when school districts have fund balances and they have savings behind it, they're protecting, the, you know, taxpayers. They're protecting um, students and their, their family as well. And so that's one of the bigger things that I, I kind of talk about. So now where does those, where do we come in? You know, three to four weeks or where do we come in percentage-wise uh, compared to your entire, entire budget? And we have to remember there are three pots to kind of how people delineate um, fund balances. So there's committed and then there's assigned. And those ones are, 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 are monies that are designated towards a specific purpose, whether it's pensions. Construction, pensions, okay. Construction, yeah. all those kind of things. And then unassigned. And that's kind of the, the pot of money that, that's out there for the savings. And I'm going to talk about that right now. So there's all kinds of numbers. So when we look at what financial advisors will tell you uh, for school districts and the government, it's between 5 and 10%. Okay. They'll say make sure Pass you have... Pass us at 12, but had, fine. Yeah, have that in amount. When you talk to the Auditor General, he's only talking about the unassigned budget. And he says when somebody gets above 20 for unassigned, that's the issue. You know, So the numbers that are out there, we have to talk about unassigned. And uh, you know, when I'm talking about that, majority of my school districts are below 20%. And in fact, they're probably in the, the minority of it, You know, 10 to 12%. So you know, when we're talking about those numbers, that's that's what we're talking about here. Okay. People are saving. But you you started off by saying a technicality. There well, are people who would look at that and say it's a technicality because the unassigned is what uh, where the surpluses are. But mm -hmm. using your same analogy, uh, the difference between your family, and we all make this analogy, yep. and a school district is your family is not getting taxpayer money. No, but... Uh, but I but I have the same responsibilities. I'm responsible for my. I understand, my but that's your income. And I exactly. And I, as a tax as a school district, I'm responsible for the 
the students that go to my school, and I'm responsible for having a public education system that, that's working, can survive um, big issues. Whether it's not getting your, your dollars from the state, like we did a few years ago, or whether it's a, you know pension increases, which okay. you know are huge. We're going to talk more about all those things yep. in just a moment. James Paul Commonwealth Foundation, this is an issue that uh, your organization has been on for a, a long time now. Uh, you just heard what uh, John had to say, and, you know, in school districts say, we need this for unexpected emergencies. And he talked about uh, two years ago when the state had a nine-month budget impasse. So your organization feels that too many school districts have surpluses that are too big. Let's be very clear right off the bat that some level of rainy day funds makes sense. It's a responsible okay, thing We to agree. Do. But as you mentioned in the beginning, the question is how much is too much? Here's the big picture. School districts in Pennsylvania are currently sitting on $4.4 billion in surplus funding, $4.4 billion, while, and this is important, while many of those same district, districts are requesting higher taxes from residents year after year. So to put that $4.4 billion in perspective, that's more than school districts spent on pension costs last year. It's nearly three times the size of the projected state budget deficit that we're facing for the next fiscal year. It's a lot of money, especially when districts are also seeking higher taxes at the same time. Now, school school directors will justify these reserves by claiming they need to save up for an emergency or a rainy day. But I would say it, it is raining right now on so many Pennsylvania residents, residents that are looking to pay their rent, make a car payment, their heating bill, pay college tuition. And the key thing here is that taxpayers deserve to have a – they have a right to know how districts are managing their money. And districts should have to explain why they are seeking tax hikes while holding millions of dollars in reserve. If you're interested in looking at your school district situation, you can go to our website at commonwealthfoundation.org slash reserves. Take a look. We have all the information there. Um, and, and ultimately, that's what this is about. It's about openness and it's about transparency. That's what we're hoping to bring to the table here. Okay. But let's go back to what John was talking about earlier. And you you admitted that uh, it is a responsible thing to do to have some money in, in, in reserve. Sure. Who decides? I mean, Commonwealth Foundation, the legislature, the governor, the Department of Education, who decides how much is too much? Well, ultimately, that's going to be – that's not for, for me to decide. That's not for John to decide. That's going to be up for taxpayers in each district to decide, which is why they deserve to have this information at their fingertips. I'd like to see a sea change in how uh, school district budgets are reported. I, you know, no longer can we just say, well, there was a meeting and they've proposed a 2% increase, um, and that's the full story. We need to know – how many years in a row have they been requesting tax increases? Not even requesting tax increases, but above a state-mandated cap that is supposed that was intended to restrain tax increases. And you, you take that, and you also say, all right, and how much money is sitting um, in these un in these accounts? Uh, in these fund balances. And I'd also say, I hope we can get into this more, that the distinction that, that uh, John is drawing between the different funds, um, you know, I, I would not, I would be hesitant to draw such uh, strong silos between those accounts, right, right. given that school districts can can so easily move money between them. With a with a simple board vote, you can move money from unassigned into a committed. The money can be moved around. In fact, that's that's precisely what happened in Lower Marion, the district that you mentioned in the lead-in, um, that that was essentially p playing a shell game with their reserve funds in order to justify higher taxes. What? So as long as that money can be moved around, uh, I, I think. All of that should be considered together. That information should be given to the public. And then residents in each district can decide if that's appropriate or not. Okay. You know, and I, I think that most people would probably agree with what you just said about having a more open process. That uh, in a, in a uh, I'm not going to say a perfect world, but in a better world, the public would pay more attention and go to a school board meeting and comment on budgets. But... Realistically, what happens is, as both of you know, that unless there is a huge tax increase or some controversial issue, school boards often have one or two people in the audience. So how do you get the public more engaged and then the school board to listen to that public? I mean, because coming into a school board meeting and just saying... That's too much. We can't do it. They, they, you have to have, you know, some some um, uh, evidence that that's too much. Here's an area we can cut. You know what I'm talking about? That you have to have a give and take. Right. Well, I, that's why you know I think the answer is more information and, and more openness about this. Um, 
you know, that's why I suggested that we need a sea change in how these how budgets are reported on. Um, I think the more information that's out there, the better. Uh, I, I think it's great that we're having a conversation right now talking about the, the different unassigned funds, the, the assigned funds. That's good. Um, I'd hope we could also talk about school districts' capital reserve funds, which is another separate pot of money that many that many school districts have. For many districts, that's millions of dollars that are actually earmarked for construction and capital projects. And in fact, there's even less transparency about these accounts because they are, they're, at least to my knowledge, John, these are not available on the public, uh, on the Department of Education's website each year. So we have we have the general fund balance. We have the capital fund balance. There's a lot of money that school districts have in reserve. Again, not we're not necessarily singling out every school district. We've reviewed all 500 and found that many uh, many districts are being responsible to taxpayers. They are uh, some keeping... even have negative balances. Correct. Yeah. So so yeah. this is a district by district issue, absolutely. But but more transparency is needed here. Yeah. So John, uh, pass a, a lot of these statistics I'm using from a survey that uh, the Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators did. Uh, they ask school districts across the state what they anticipated for 2017-2018. About 70% of school districts in the state anticipated raising taxes this year. And, you know, a bottom line question that many people would ask in hearing this is, how can a school district justify sitting on reserves when they're going to raise taxes? Yeah, first first, let me kind of tackle those Two things. Okay. All right. um, so first is I like, like it that you multitask. I try. <laughs> it's very difficult for me some days. Trust me. Um, so we're talking about these fund balances, and I'm I'm going to say the 4.4 billion. That's the aggregate, but I'm talking about unassigned. And unassigned is about 1.8 billion right now, and an unassigned still a lot of money. For 15, 16. But I'll tell you what. That's only 6.5 percent of school district expenses. So that's about three and a half, three 3.4 weeks of saved up dollars that we could, you know, if, if things stopped, we could manage. Okay. So John, don't let me weeks. stop you for just one minute because yep. I, I have to point these things out. That's the state overall. As mm-hmm. both of you agree, this is a district by district and issue. Let, let's get into that. Okay, I, go I ahead. agree. So it's district by district. And that's the thing. And I, I, I disagree with the fact that things aren't transparent because these things come up in board meetings. These are discussed and this is a very transparent process. School districts go in, they, they talk about where they're going to invest the dollars, what's going on with, with different um, balances and what they're doing. I mean, they're, you have to go to different school districts, in essence, and talk to them and say, you know, what, why, why do you have that, that amount? And each district, I guarantee you, will have a reason of what they're doing with it. So, well, would Laura Merrick you know, can justify $56 million? Now, well, I don't know all the districts. I mean, I only know, I mean, I could point out that, but I could also say, well, I, I know a few districts that said, well, you know, we're all going to go in on a, a career and technical school. We right. all promise to save X amount of dollars for the next five years so that we don't have to take a loan and we'll put in the first 25%. Understood. So mm-hmm. that number on their balance sheet looks huge. But in essence, if you actually found out what that number was all about, you would say, oh, well, that's you know, that's actually prudent financial investment, a prudent in investment of taxpayer dollars to, to do the right thing. Um, they save on interest rate and all, all that. So I think when we're talking about these things, there is an individual story. You're right. For each school district, what's going on? And some of them are at negative um, balance, which which is a, a problem all to itself. Right. So, okay. So that's kind of the, the, the way of looking at, at that. By the 4.5 billion compared, or 4.4 compared to 1.8, what we're really talking about on assigned, and then, uh, and also the transparency side. I would love more people to show up at school board meetings, um, but you know, we don't have that many people. But I tell you, who does show up is the the press is almost always there as well and covers these things. Uh, so you know, there is that transparency. These things come up in school board meetings all the time. Like here, here we're talking about an investment. Here we're talking about a new building. Or we're under, you know, we're paying for extra things. Mm-hmm. So now back to your last question. Okay. Sorry about, um, you know, seventy percent, seventy percent raising taxes. And we're talking about that. Now we're talking about my favorite, you know, my favorite subject, Act One, which is going to put everybody to <laughs> Boy, sleep. Well, you must be fun at a you party. <laughs> Every time I'm on, I'm on, you say that like you are so much fun I know, at parties. I know, I know. Like, but yeah, I, you know, but, but act, explain what Act One is for those who I, don't follow this uh, so closely. Act One, I'll. I'll Simplest form is a way is, is a mandated budgeting process right. for school districts, and when it comes down to it, in February you have to come up as your school district predicting 
what kind of revenue stream you're going to have and try to do your budget the best you can. And I, uh, I compare that process to just kind of close, you know, you know, putting blinders over your eyes and making the best guess you can. At the same time, you have to file and say, you know, okay, well, we, we see a deficit. We see a problem here. We're paying, you know, health care costs are going up, pension costs are going up, and, and, and all these things are happening. We have to do a tax increase, we think. And you have to apply to the state and say, we, we think we're going to need an exemption beyond what's limited within the Act 1 process. And so that, that happens, um, which is really interesting because, you know, half of, the ex, half of the people that apply for it in February, because there's this huge number and it looks scary, but half of them actually utilize it. And then if you look at that, that number, the people that actually utilize these, this exemption to increase taxes, it's only a, a third that, of the money that's allocated that's actually utilized because people are guessing at that stage. So it scares everybody, but, but I'll tell you what, it's a lot less than what is expected. But, John, you're not making people feel a whole lot better. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I hate to say it, but this, I'd love to change the Act 1 process so it makes sense, but it sure doesn't. One of these days, it may. James, yep. go ahead. Well, I absolutely agree that the, the Act 1 process, which, again, was passed in 2006 as a way to protect taxpayers, I'd say is not working. And I think there's a, there's a better way. I think the solution here um, is to get... Um, voters give voters a seat at the table uh, through voter referendums. Uh, this is something that many other states, um, uh, many other residents in other states enjoy the the ability to vote on whether or not their property taxes will be increased. This is something that um, exists in Ohio, for in, for example. And what's interesting about the experience in Ohio is that voters in in Ohio often will approve higher taxes on themselves. But that's because there's a process at play. School boards have to go to them and say, we want to raise your taxes by this amount for this reason. But that's not happening in Pennsylvania. Right now, we have the system where school districts are somewhat restrained um, by, by, you know, they're allowed to raise taxes 2 or 3%. But if they apply for an exemption, um, those exemptions are almost always granted, and it's possible to raise taxes even higher. So the system isn't working. Um, so, some of these arguments I mean, were made when Act 1 was passed, but why do you need a school board then if, uh, if, if voters are going to decide? Well, there's, uh, certainly John here can, can talk about all the important functions of the school board, but, but more important than, than what the, the, the role that the school board play here um, is that you're still going to need, you know, they have a lot to do besides just setting the tax rates. I understand. But, I, I mean, I was being a little flippant there, but what I'm what well, my but, point is, is that uh, I guess to add to that, are voters informed enough about all the things that a school board is? Are they, do they have enough information to make a vote? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely they do. They can, they, voters in, in each of the 500 school districts know their schools, they know their communities, they know uh, you know the state of each school. They know if there's a need, if there really is a need for a new construction project, or they isn't. They, if, or if there isn't, uh, they can. They are the ones who are best suited to decide. Okay, am I going to be on board with a six percent increase in my property taxes because the school board has justified this to me? I'll tell you what. If there was a referendum process, there would be a, a lot more engagement on the issue of reserves um, because residents would be asking even more than they are now. They'd be asking, well, how much is my district holding? Um, in their unassigned fund, or how much are they holding in their capital fund while they're also trying to raise my taxes? Is this tax increase necessary when they're already sitting on $56 million in Lower Marion? Uh, I mean, these are questions that you would know, come to the forefront if voters were involved in a more democratic way. You know, Lower Marion is, is not a good example. I mean, it's an extreme example because it's one of the richest school districts in the state. I think uh, they have a budget of $228 million, which is much, much bigger than most municipalities across the, the state. But still, it it is an extreme, but the percentages there are... But, I mean, I also talked in our... In, when we were uh, coming into the program, uh, the Southern Fulton District, which is a rural district, uh, has savings of 85% of their total budget. I mean, that now you look at that, and that sounds ridiculous. Yeah, Scott, if, if, again, if you on our website, commonwealthfoundation.org slash reserves, you'll find that we don't just list the information in terms of total fund balance. We put that into a percentage of a district spending, uh, their fund balance as a percentage of their total spending, as a way to you know do an apples-to-apples apples comparison. And we found that there are actually 13 school districts that um, – kind of check two boxes, which are not good boxes to check. One is that they have over 20% of their yearly spend in, in a reserve account. And two, they have requested permission from the Department of Education to raise taxes above 
that Act 1 cap in at least eight of the last 10 years. So the issue here is not just the fund balances. The issue is really combining that with repeated requests to raise taxes above a cap that was intended to protect taxpayers. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. We're talking about Pennsylvania school districts that have surpluses, but yet they're still raising taxes in some areas. Our guest today, James Paul, senior policy analyst with the right-leaning think tank, the Commonwealth Foundation, and John Callahan, assistant executive director with the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. If you have a question or comment, would like to weigh in, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. You can send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Leave a question on WITF's Facebook page on on Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. And coming up in a few minutes, we're going to have an update from the Bill Cosby trial in Montgomery County. Still no verdict, but we'll hear from uh, Kristen Hauser from the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. All right, uh, James, I'm going to put this to you because I'm not going to throw a softball to uh, to John here about unfunded mandates. Uh, in that same PASA survey I, that I've been referring to, uh, there was a, a paragraph in there and a graph that talked about how almost all the additional tax revenue coming into Pennsylvania school districts is going for unfunded mandates like pensions and other things. So, you know, basically what they're the school districts are saying is, we have no choice here. The state is saying to us, this is money that you have to spend. Yeah. You have to find a way to come up with it. How do you respond to that? Well, I'm glad you mentioned pensions because absolutely that is. We a, couldn't go without talking about yeah. pensions. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> you know, Commonwealth Foundation absolutely agrees that, that the pension system that we've had is unsustainable. For over a decade, we've been talking about the need to reform it. It's why we're encouraged about what happened last week by the pension reform that the legislature passed and that Governor Wolf signed. Still, many school districts are holding, um, I would say, far beyond what rising pension costs justify uh, while asking to raise taxes um, at the same time. And, and what's interesting specifically about the, the survey uh, that you mentioned, um, you know, every year we, we see that we see the study that's released by the school administrators and the business official lobby. Um, and there's a study that says that schools are forced to spend down their reserves um, and that they have these mandates and so on. Yet, Every year, the reserves continue to grow. We've seen these reports for the last four years, and we've seen them grow by $400 million, $100 million, $200 million, and this last year, $125 million, respectively. So each year, we're told that the, the costs are outpacing their revenues, yet each year, the fund balances continue to grow. Absolutely, I understand that the, that the pension problem is a, is a huge one. That's one that, for many school directors, they didn't create that problem. They did not. And I'm aware of that. Now, there are other tools at, at, at school districts' disposal to, to have to play with the hand that they're dealt, which is difficult. And I think a big part of that is how, how, um, how tough they're negotiating uh, when it comes to, to, um, to, to salaries and benefits and things like that when they're at the, the negotiating table. Um, but uh, you can't it, – it's hard for me to, to each year hear about how we're told that the, the reserves are being spent down and we're being overrun with these costs, yet each year the reserves seem to continue to grow. So, John, as I said, I wasn't going to throw you the softball, but the unfunded mandates and address what, what James just said. Yeah, so let me get, let me, I'm going to hit two points here, of course. You know, so we're talking about, on average, what's the percentage that people are doing with un, with their, their, uh, their fund balances here, the, the unassigned fund balances. We're 6.5% is our average across the state. So when you said Lower Marion and others, that's kind of the outliers. I mean, that's a typical... That's an outlier. I'll agree Yeah, it's a that, typical yeah. argument like, here's the one one shiny star. Let's not forget about the it rest of it. You know? well, it also includes the negative. You know, It also includes the negative districts, too. But course. let me talk about also that 86% of the districts right now are below 15% on, on, on the uh, unassigned fund balances. How so, many are above 10? 
above 10. I don't have the t- between 10 and 15. I don't have it, but I just did the, the 15% because I knew that 20 would come up. And I okay. said, well, let's find out how much 20. I had 86% of districts. So okay. majority of my districts are actually in the right financial model for this. Now, let's talk about just the softball you gave me, which I love. Thank yeah. you <laughs> very much. The softball is what are increases? Now, if, if I did the Act 1 index for every school district, and every school district raised their property taxes. And by the today. way, the index that the yep. John's referring to is it's above what school districts are supposed to raise their taxes by, but there are exemptions. Yeah. And that's one of the more controversial from, again, I got back to that past. Uh, uh, there were 11% of well, almost 12% <clears throat> were anticipating raising taxes above the uh, the exemption level. So we're exciting people right now um, <laughs> with this discussion. I know, I know. But I'll tell you what, if we had everybody raise money, I could raise you know, and this is off. You know, this is taxpayer money, one point four uh, billion. But then my pension increase is two point one billion since twenty ten. So if I just ran from twenty ten on out, raised about how much money that could possibly be raised in property taxes with the exemption, and then I compared it to my, my pension costs, I don't even meet my pension costs. And that's that's one huge problem. So even so, so is that the post, unfunded? Is that an unfunded mandate? That's an unfunded mandate. I mean, that's right. just simply we've gone up by three hundred and thirty-seven percent since twenty ten for school districts. Just that line item alone. Okay, so and that's a mandate. The, now we're getting into you know, all James, kinds of fun talking, numbers. But, 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 but yeah, I'm trying to stay away from numbers somewhat. <clears throat> you can't though. Yeah. But we just had what has been described as historic legislation dealing with pensions. But they deal with future hires, uh, new employees coming into the schools, coming into uh, the state government. We are looking at, and no one seems to know the figure exactly, but a 60 to $70 billion debt for, for pensions for schools and for state employees. So from the school district point of view, from the school point of view, John, what is the answer? The answer is a, is a mixture. I mean, it's an answer for every school district. What are you going to do? This the, the SB one and the the passage of the pension reform deals long term. Our short t- short term expenses are still going to be the same. I mean, we're still going to be, you know, thirty thirty three uh, cents of you know, percent of every salary is going to be spent on the the pension, and that's typically not what it is in, in normal business issues. So, what what's the answer when you're facing that kind of increase, special education increases, charter school increases, and all that that you really don't have much control over? Um, the answer is is twofold. You know, you, you need to look at your reserves and got to see where where that's happening. Of course, you should also look at what you're doing with with teachers and salaries and all that. And our salaries have been down over the past uh, five years, um, so people have been controlling that. Um, I mean, we know a lot of school districts this this year with their budgets cut teachers, cut cut programs. You know, so it is part part that, and then they also go to the taxpayers and say, "Here's the story. Here's what we're we're looking at." James, I know that uh, there are many people uh, over the years who have said that, okay, maybe it's not the answer, but one of the ways to a solution is that school districts have to stop spending as much as as what they do. Are you, the Commonwealth Foundation, uh, you uh, agree to that? Absolutely. I mean, you have to take this on on a district by district basis, but certainly some school districts are going to have to cut down on their spending. That, but, that, but where do you that, cut? Well, well, look. The the first thing I you know I did mention that uh, salaries and benefits are going to be something that are going to have to be taken a close look at. It doesn't mean cutting that, but in a lot of districts, if you could restrain the rate of growth in those areas, that would make a big difference. And absolutely, the uh, you know I think. Uh, John mentioned that that reserves are going to be part of the discussion here. I I would say they are a, a big part of the discussion for many school districts because, um, you know, what I'd like your listeners to understand is that there are several different reserve funds. There are more than just the unassigned that John wants to, to box this discussion into. There is also the assigned, the committed, there are capital funds. And, and as I mentioned, the, the fact that so many of these funds can be moved around easily uh, says to me that we have to look at all this money together. Look, if, if PSBA, if the uh, school boards association and school directors are open with their residents a- about how much money they have, uh, how they intend to use it, 
um, and why taxes are going up, then then so be it. But this is information that that voters should have, and that all residents um, that all residents must have, so they can decide for themselves: is the amount of money that's sitting in my school district's um, account is is that something that I can that I can deal with that I that I understand while they're also trying to raise my taxes. John, and, you know, we're touching on a lot of different issues, but uh, and one thing I like to remember from time to time that we're talking a lot about numbers, we're talking a lot about money, we're talking a lot about taxpayers, but we're not talking about the kids. Yeah. And that's the bottom line is we've got to think about uh, the education of, of, of these students across Pennsylvania. But I just throw that out there. But, John, uh, during the Wolf administration, uh, there has been a, a $300 million increase in uh, funding the past two years. Another 100 will be coming this year. Republicans have already agreed to that. That's $400 million in three years. Now, you're probably going to go back to, okay, we had money cut, but, uh, you know, there's some question as to whether that was actually money that should have been spent. But still, that $400 million sounds like a lot of money to taxpayers. It, what are schools doing with that money? It, it does. Now, first of all, I think one of the things is we can't agree more that things should be open and transparent. And I think school districts are, their school boards are meeting about these things. They're having discussions in public. People should know these numbers. I want more people to come to school board meetings as much as you do, Scott. Um, and, and I love the fact that the press covers them. But we definitely have to be, you know, we are transparent right now. This is all out in the open. Um, but I'll say, with, when, let's just talk about this budget. And, you know, I, I can't complain about 100 and, and I'll put a $125 million increase because we're talking about special ed is about another $25 million on there. Um, that's kind of the new money that's coming in. But then at the same time that we're getting those additional dollars from the state through a formula dispersed to all the school districts, we also are getting a $188 million bill this year for pensions. So if I subtract the two and do a little rounding, um, you know, I'm, I'm $60 million actually in the hole for this, this budget um, because at the same time I'm getting an increase, I'm getting the, the pension bill. And so I look at that, and for the past three years, that's exactly what has happened. Um, I would love to, you know, I would love to have more additional funding and, and to kind of pay for those pension things. But that's really what that's, I hate to say it, that's where a lot of those those dollars are going towards. James, I saw a quote from you that said that the next time that uh, Pennsylvania school districts say they're unfunded or underfunded uh, and that people should think about these surpluses um, and that $400 million that we're talking about, how do you look at that? I mean, uh, again, it sounds like a lot of money, but uh, considering you know how much money we're talking about overall, it's really not. Well, I'd, I'd say this: in the last school year, uh, district school district spending in Pennsylvania reached an all-time high of over twenty-eight billion dollars. Okay, up one billion from the previous year. You mentioned the four hundred million dollar increase in, in in basic education and, and those line, line items. Um, if you look at Pennsylvania spending compared to other states, uh, Pennsylvania ranks either tenth or twelfth, uh, very high compared to, to compared to other per states student, right. per student, right. of course. And and I'd say, look, uh, money isn't isn't the whole story here. Um, there, the, pen, many Pennsylvania schools have plenty of money. The problem is how is it being spent, and that's why, yes, before either the state or local districts can justify a tax increase, uh, absolutely. That's why reserves have to be part of that discussion and should be in so many districts. And I'm glad that, that you mentioned, um, of course, the, the students, the public school students here. Um, and, of course, they are the most important thing in this discussion. And when, and when funding is not being allocated to places that is going to directly improve student performance, is not being directly allocated to the classroom, whether that's money that is being um, uh, directed into the pension system and, and not getting into the classroom, whether it's in a reserve account or wherever it is, that's a problem, and that's why this issue should be so important to everyone listening. Mm -hmm. We only have a minute or so left. Uh, I want to thank both of you for being with us today, and I think that uh, provided a, a good background of kind of where we are with, with this issue, and there are a lot of things to consider, and a lot more that we didn't even get to. So uh, I'll ask... And this is kind of repeating myself, James, but how much is too much? I mean, what are you looking for? I mean, you're not looking for the legislature to set limits, are you? I'm not I'm not looking to set a hard a hard number on anything, but I'd say this general principle applies, which is that this applies at the state level or the local level. Before 
any level of government asks for more from taxpayers. We have to make sure the money that they already have is being spent wisely and is being used appropriately. Um, and, and I'd also emphasize that the, the issue here is not just about the reserves, although that is a big that is a big part of it. The issue is the reserves combined with repeated requests to, to raise taxes above an index that was designed to protect taxpayers. That's the real problem here. So, John, the last thing school board members want to do is go ask for a, a property tax increase. It's one of the most painful things you can do because you're asking your friends and neighbors to contribute uh, their hard-earned treasure uh, to a school district. But there are reasons, and there are, are there, there are plenty of uh, transparency in the process that people see that. And there are a lot of pressures on school districts that they have to deal with when it comes to the unfunded mandates that we're, we have tremendous amount of uh, cost increases that are beyond our control in, in those areas. So you have to make those, those, those decisions. And in fact, we have. I mean, salaries are down uh, 2 to 4% uh, over the years. And if I took out all these unfunded uh, increases, we have been controlling costs across the state around 1% to 2% uh, increase over the past uh, five years. So School districts are making these tough decisions. They're not easy. So check out with your school board. Find out what's going on. I can only encourage you to do that. And you will find out um, there are reasons and they're, they're good ones. Well, I want to thank both of you for being with us today. John Callahan is an assistant executive director at the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. James Paul, a senior policy analyst with the Commonwealth Foundation. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. A jury in Montgomery County is in its third day of deliberations in the sexual assault trial of comedian Bill Cosby. Cosby is facing charges of drugging and raping Andrea Constant, a woman he knew from his association with Temple University. She testified that she considered Cosby a mentor. Constant is one of about 60 women who say that Cosby sexually assaulted them, but uh, she is the only one where charges would be filed. Her case is the only one where charges could be filed because of the statute of limitations. Kristen Hauser of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape has been in Narstown for the trial and joins us on the phone. Kristen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. No verdict yet, huh? No verdict yet. The jury went straight to deliberations uh, just about 20 minutes ago. You know, I've covered many of these trials. You covered the Sandusky trial. I say covered. You were there and uh, observed everything and reported out. Um, you know, everyone kind of tries to uh, anticipate what a jury is thinking when, you know, they've been out for two hours or, in this case, many hours. How many hours is it, by the way? I believe we're in our 17th hour deliberation, okay. if, if I'm counting correctly. So, I mean, I, I hate for, to ask for speculation, but it would seem as though if you go on for 17 hours and the, the jury has come back several times to ask for testimony to be read to them, that it seems as though they're having some difficulty. It it does seem that way, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I don't think that's speculation. But, uh, yeah, we, we have revisited... Um, testimony that Bill Cosby provided during uh, civil depositions in 2005. That's how we began yesterday morning. Uh, The jury asked for some clarifications about the language in the charge um, uh, regarding providing, uh, administering intoxicants. Um, Wanted the judge to clarify what without knowledge meant. And of course, the the judge really can't expand on that further than, than the words that are written in the law. Uh, we revisited uh, testimony from a Canadian police officer who was one of the first people to take Andrea Constant's uh, initial report um, yesterday evening. And, yeah, they're not done. So hmm. we were, were, were you actually in the courtroom? Yes. You were. So kind of give me your, I mean, as I said, you've, uh, you've been in courtrooms before with these, these cases. Give me your sense of what you've heard. Well, um, you know, Andrea Constant herself was on the stand for uh, you know nearly a full business day, uh, going through a direct examination, a cross examination, and uh, she seems like a very um, steady, focused woman. Uh, was not did not appear to be shaken by uh, the intense questioning and. And, and, you know, was just really honest um, about, you know, there there are some inconsistencies between different accounts of her story. And, uh, you know, her, her response was pretty consistently, yes, I, I did make an error and it was a confusing time. 
Uh, we revisited um, a lot of testimony that Bill Cosby himself had provided in 2005, a, a lot of that focusing on uh, what pills he gave her and why he did not tell her uh, what they were. She, Her testimony says he told her they were herbal. His testimony says he didn't tell her what they were and, and you know, withheld that information not only from her that evening but um, from her mother on, on some follow-up phone calls a year later. So there's there's just been a lot of, uh, you know, digging into the details around some of those themes. Now, one of the surprises for those in, on the outside, uh, you know, following this is that uh, Cosby's defense only lasted uh, six minutes. Mm-hmm. And that surprised a lot of people. I think that, uh, you know, there were many people, especially with someone of, uh, you know, as well-known, a celebrity, had a good reputation as Bill Cosby, that uh, there would only be a six-minute defense. That that was surprising. I, I think it was. But if you've been in the courtroom, they have really mounted their defense uh, through the cross-examination of people and, and then definitely through closing arguments and, um, you know, really playing upon some themes and, and frankly, um, you know, trying to draw a question on the, the testimony that was provided by uh, Dr. Veronique Valliere, um, who's an expert witness on, on um, victim behavior. You know, the, the defense is, is trying to draw attention to um, what Dr. Valliere calls um, uh, bad expectations about victim behavior. And so the defense was really focusing on that, that there was not a prompt report, that there was uh, continued communication between the two, uh, that there are some inconsistencies between her different accounts. Um, and, and I think that they're they're hoping that that will cast doubt in the minds of jurors. Um, you, and, and it does draw attention away from the fact that um, the accounts of that evening um, are absolutely identical between the two of the two parties, um, other than the issue of whether or not she was given an intoxicant without her knowledge that uh, made her unconscious. Um, you know, we, uh, Chris, didn't, and you've heard me say this uh, when we've talked, is that uh, we here in Smart Talk and WITF, we don't do like celebrity uh, uh, news and, and that kind of thing. So right. l- let me ask this question. Why is this case important? This case is important for a couple of reasons. I, I think, number one, um, it's important to see that a prosecutor is willing to bring charges uh, even when there was not a prompt report. And, uh, you know, in, in this case, um, you know, nearly a, a 11 years after uh, the original report was made and uh, and they declined to, to charge back then. So, you know, when you have a prosecutor that says, nope, we really have enough and, and we want to move this forward, um, we, we hope that other jurisdictions around the country are, are paying attention and realizing that you, know, you still can build a strong case, and, and, and they did here. But I think more importantly than that, um, this case is really giving a lot of opportunity for people to talk about uh, non-stranger sexual assault, to talk about what victim dynamics really look like, um, and, and I think also to talk about the challenges that, that actually exist within the, the criminal justice system and recognize that uh, that, that system is not always the, a great system, and, and um, particularly when it comes to the issue of sexual assault, which is a crime committed in private, uh, and the standard of evidence is very high, you know, with good reason. Um, but I, I hope that it's helping people think about that we still need to be able to provide uh, support and other outlets for survivors to uh, to heal, and uh, that those cannot be dependent on the outcome of a court case, because that's quite simply not a path that most people want to take. You know, this this case is anything but typical. You can't uh, divorce that, you know, we're talking about a celebrity, one of the most well-known people in America who is accused of a crime here. But if you could put that aside for just a moment, Kristen, and look back on uh, some of your experiences in a courtroom before, is this case typical in that way as far as he said, she said, uh, in some of the issues that have come up? That have come up? Well, actually, this case is atypical because you normally do not have um, deposition from the defendant uh, that matches the, the testimony of the victim uh, in, in all but one area. And, and that is what we have in this case. So th- this case is not the norm. Uh, you usually don't have that level of detail or, or congruence between stories, uh, e- even when the defendant does go on the stand. So uh, those kinds of things make this different. Um, it is common, though, in, in the dynamic um, 
you know, that, that so many sexual assaults are really founded on uh, the betrayal of trust and uh, the, the betrayal of, of a friendship or a family relationship. So um, the, the situation that uh, the alleged crime, what, you know, is supposed to have taken in is, is pretty typical. You know, something else that uh, in his closing argument that uh, Cosby's attorney did that, uh, you know, and I'm no legal scholar, but, uh, you know, looking at it from the outside is I was a little bit surprised that, uh, you know, one of the statements he made in that closing argument is that the only reason we're here, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the only reason we're here is right back there. And he pointed to a number of uh, women who claimed that they were sexually assaulted by uh, by Cosby. Right. Reason I was surprised by that is because the judge didn't allow that as part of the testimony that, uh, you know, that there was this um, ongoing thing that there were a lot of other uh, alleged victims out there. And you know, his attorney brought up that there were a lot of alleged victims out there. So that that was a little bit surprising on my part. Yeah, I think it's, you know, that there's, there's definitely been attempts, uh, not only in the courtroom, but uh, with Cosby's publicists coming out uh, every few hours to, to offer some, uh, some more of their spin on, on their take on the case and, and act like this is uh, nothing more than a media stunt for a lot of people. But um, yeah, that that was a little <laughs> a little un, 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 uh, unexpected, but um, yeah, I'm glad that the judge said you can't because the case isn't about anybody else in the room. The case is only about the allegations about what happened that one night between those two people. So, give me a sense of what it's like. I mean, I've I've seen some of the photographs that you've posted and some of your social media posts. That uh, this isn't your typical uh, scene outside the courthouse either, is it? No, I'm I'm actually looking out a window right now at the front of the courthouse. There are, uh, you know, news camera stands and satellite trucks uh, surrounding, uh, you know, probably, I don't know, 50, 75 people milling around. I, I think that there's been some uh, camaraderie between members of the press and the public and other survivors who have come out. Uh, you know, we've sort of become a little... Uh, troop over the past week, um, but th- this has been a lot of hurry up and wait. You know, a lot of people are want to stay close to the courthouse because we have no way of knowing when the verdict will come. But uh, you know, are sort of waiting on pins and needles to see what the outcome will be. And I think one of the things I was referring to is, isn't there one woman in particular who is like driving around in a truck that has signs? Yes, yes, uh, she she has been there. So every evening uh, toward the end of court, there's certainly been some. Uh, fans of Bill Cosby who have gathered outside and have been, you know, shouting their their best wishes to him every time he leaves the courthouse. And uh, there's been a, a handful of um, people that have come out. Uh, this one woman in particular with some pretty colorful signs that she is, um, you know, just talking about no means no and uh, using the the no more campaign symbol, uh, which has become a national symbol to to end domestic violence and sexual assault. So. Uh, you know, she's she's added a little bit of she, she's very lively. She has uh, Helen Reddy's uh, I Am Woman Hear Me War, uh, Roar playing and she blows bubbles to draw attention to herself. So, um, you know, there, there's a little bit of a, a colorful element around the courthouse. As Only well. in America, Kristen. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's Cosby like in the courtroom? He has been pretty, um, you know, quiet, subdued, you know, just sitting and listening through the trial. Uh, he's had a few different people coming in each day for uh, moral support, but he's he's really not been a participant in the, in the proceedings at yeah, all. Yeah, he's only spoken once, right, when uh, the judge asked him whether uh, he was going to testify? Yes. Mm-hmm. And he, he said no. That's correct. Uh, yeah. So, you know, again, and I hate to speculate, but this is, as you said earlier, uh, important in a, in a lot of ways. What if he is acquitted? What happens? Um, you know, I don't know that, that it really changes a whole lot. We, you know, to keep this in perspective, as I said, the majority of sexual assault victims don't consider the courts as an option uh, in, in terms of what they want in their own personal life. So, you know, having an acquittal, I don't know, really changes that sentiment one way or the other. Um, you know, but I, I do think that no, no matter what the outcome is, we've had some important uh, growth in terms of our, our nation's conversation of, about this this crime. And I, I do think as well that, um, you know, there's some speculation about the role that race may or may not play in, in this particular case. And uh, while I'm not going to speculate on this case, you know, that that's an important 
conversation to have too about uh, you know race and, and the criminal justice system and um, people's perceptions of things. You know, we, we this isn't an either or situation, but we need to find a way to talk about you know the reality and the the common occurrence of sexual violence, how to deal with it, and at the same time address some of the biases that we know do exist and that get played out in the court system because it is a representation of our communities. I guess the reason I ask that question is, and it's a, this is something that we deal with all the time, and the question that, it, that is asked is if a high-profile defendant like this, uh, and as you said, an atypical case where it was years after uh, the alleged incident, if he's acquitted, does it keep those uh, victims or, uh, you know, those who cl- claim to have been uh, sexually assaulted, does it keep them from reporting? I don't really think that it does, and that, that's pure speculation on my part. But what we know is most victims don't report anyway, no matter who the assailant is, and that when the assailant is a person of uh, social standing in, in their community, and that, that could just be a, a, a teacher, it could be a prominent philanthropist, it could be a coach. You know, when you have somebody of prominent standing in your community, that makes it more difficult to report. So I, I don't think that having... Um, you know, a, a beloved comedian who's been successful over several decades and, and you know, was at the peak of his fame when, when this, um, when some of these incidents were alleged to have occurred. I, I don't know that an acquittal of a person that carries that kind of uh, legacy and, and influence uh, will, will really have much bearing on um, on other survivors that, you know, who are trying to make decisions about their own life. I, th- I think people are making decisions about reporting based on what works for them, their su- their personal support systems, and their community, and, and they're going to continue to do that. The Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, one of uh, your, your main missions is education. Yes. How will you use this case as uh, to, to educate people? Well, we have been using, we've, blo- we've blogged a little bit, um, you know, to, to use court proceedings as a way to talk about the fact that it, it is very common when you have um, relationships of, that are this close that are then betrayed. It's very common that the victim does have ongoing uh, communication, uh, you know, that it's very confusing, that you just want the relationship to go back to how it was. Uh, again, talking about how normal and common delayed reporting and partial reporting are. Um, we're, we're using this as an opportunity, too, to get people to start thinking about prevention. Um, if you look at all of the allegations against Mr. Cosby, spanning, you know, four-plus decades and read the accounts, you know, people were saying there were, there were rumors, we felt uncomfortable, um, you know, there were warnings uh, that agents were giving to young uh, aspiring actresses. So we have to think about how can we do better? You know, what, what's more effective way that we could all behave when we're hearing rumors about somebody in our community. Um, what can we do to offer support to people that um, you know, may have been impacted by that person's behavior? How can you intervene? Uh, how, can, how can you ask hey, other institutions hey, Kristen, to step in? I, I kind of have to. I'm, I'm out of time. Hey, thank you Alrighty. very much, and uh, we'll see if there's a verdict today. We'll let you know. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to be talking about distracted driving. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.